I'm G4, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll tell you about the history of railroads in northern New England. enthusiastic and enunciated greeting. Topical comment about coronavirus. Topical comment about current events. Untopical comment about coronavirus or current events that gives away significant time span between recording and publishing. Different sounding audio insertion making fun of and correcting untopical comment. Apology for significant delay since last episode. Justification for significant delay through deflection to current model routing projects. Shameless request for money through reminder of more current musings on Patreon blog. Uninteresting description of the selection of 439 railroads to be discussed in miniseries and the process for sorting them by region that does not appeal to general listeners. Excuse for looseness of regional boundaries by way of legitimate point that railroads travel between different places, thus sometimes crossing regional boundaries. How fast but ardently delivered segue into list. We'll start off in Massachusetts with the largest line haulers, the Class 1 railroads, beginning with the Boston and Albany. If you'll recall from the last miniseries episode, for a significant portion of American history, travel was defined by watercraft. Nearly all cities of meaningful size had a port, usually at the mouth of a river to facilitate transloading from blue water to brown water fleets, as well as to provide some degree of protection from the open ocean. Inland travel was more limited by the availability of navigable waterways. Narrow or rapidly flowing rivers usually had their flow regulated with dams and locks, and later shallow or wide rivers were supplemented by canalways. Unlike Great Britain, which both had a jumpstart on and more favorable geography for canals, the construction of canal networks in the United States was patchwork, with some in southern New England, extending from the Great Lakes, a small network in mostly eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey, the Erie Canal and its branches in upstate New York, and solidly one in the south, in Virginia. Thus, large parts of the country separated by mountains remained inaccessible. Enter the Boston and Albany. In much the same spirit as the Baltimore and Ohio discussed before, the BNA sought to cross the Berkshire Mountains in western Massachusetts to speed travel to Albany and connections west via the Erie Canal, as well as to siphon eastward some of the industry of middle Massachusetts, which was traditionally sent south along the Connecticut River. Initially charted as the Boston and Worcester in 1831, when the Baltimore and Ohio was already up and running, it connected its namesake cities in 1835. This is anomalous among railroads, which, as we will learn in later episodes, can sometimes be ambitiously named. While some railroads, such as the Wiscasset and Quebec, are truly ridiculous why would Quebec care about such a puny port town other railroads failed catastrophically at branding, such as the St. Louis San Francisco, which somehow never got west of Texas, spent most of its time in Oklahoma, and even managed to go the exact opposite direction of California and build a branch to Birmingham, Alabama. Anyway, back to the BNA, er, W. 
1837, the subsidiary Western Railroad started construction westward to the New York State Line via Pittsfield, Massachusetts, opening in sections until its completion in 1841. A single tunnel brought the railroad under the New York-Massachusetts State Line, and a third subsidiary built from Albany to the tunnel in 1842, forming the longest and most expensive contiguous railroad mainline in the country at the time. All three companies were consolidated in 1870 to form the Boston and Albany. By 1843, the route was double-tracked to Worcester, and in the same year, the railroad introduced season passes, allowing unlimited travel among stations suburban to Boston. This effectively created the concept of commuter rail, a tactic which would later be copied by the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad in the form of commuted price tickets, if bought in bulk. Hence, commuters. To complement this, in the 1880s, the BNA acquired another main line heading north out of Boston, which they combined into a unified commuter service called the Circuit, seeing 35 trains a day. This culminated in the construction of the BNA's main station in Boston, South Station, opening in 1899, which still serves the majority of Boston commuter and Amtrak services to this day. In 1900, the BNA was leased to the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad for 99 years, giving Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central system a route into New England, although the BNA still operated as a separate organization. In the 1920s, the Central started designing some of the first modern, heavy-duty steam locomotives. Whereas the New York Central's famous 464 Hudsons were optimized for low-grade high-speed travel among their famous water-level route following its eponymous river, the BNA needed something for its more strenuous mountain grades. The result is one of the most famous locomotive classes in history, the 284 Berkshire. Though named for their original New England proving grounds, the Berkshires later proliferated across the Midwest, favored by railroads needing heavy-hauling, high-speed freights. The nickel-plate roads surviving 765 Berkshire is a well-nigh religious experience that should be at the top of any rail enthusiast's bucket list. As is the case with most railroads, wartime rationing led to a peak of passenger service in the early 1940s, during which time the BNA cooperated with New York, New Haven, and Hartford for several through trains from Boston to New York via Springfield, some of which surviving through early Amtrak before the 1990s consolidation of the Northeast Corridor through Providence. Similarly, the BNA sent many through trains west along the rest of the New York Central System, such as the Empire State Express to St. Louis, the Lakeshore Limited to Chicago, the Wolverine to Chicago via a jaunt to Detroit, and the Niagara to Chicago via London, Ontario, and Detroit. By the 1950s, however, the BNA was in harsh decline at the hands of automobility. Part of the circuit line was turned to the city's expanding streetcar-turned-light-rail network, and through passenger service in Albany was diminished and circuitously rerouted as a result of cost-cutting measures. In 1968, the BNA merged into Penn Central. Currently, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority runs most of the BNA's original commuter services. The other major railroad to serve Boston was the Boston and Maine. Originally incorporated in 1833 and changing its name with each incremental expansion, the predecessor railroad settled on the Boston and Maine after it connected Wilmington, Massachusetts on the booming Boston and Lowell Railroad with Portland, Maine in 1842. One year later, the BNM entered into an agreement with the Eastern Railroad to operate a single joint line into Portland, possibly one of the first of its kind in the country. However, at the same time, on the opposite end of the railroad, negotiations for trackage rights on the Boston and Lowell broke down, so the BNM decided to build its own route into the city, forming a contiguous connection between Boston and Portland. 
1887, the B&M finally leased the Boston and Lowell, gaining extensive access to northeastern and north-central Massachusetts. In 1890, the B&M purchased its old partner, the Eastern Railroad, providing a secondary route between Boston and Portland. In 1895, the B&M leased the Concord and Montreal Railroad, acquiring widespread trackage in New Hampshire. And finally, in 1900, the B&M leased, then later acquired the Fitchburg Railroad, which built the famous Hoosick Tunnel, giving the B&M a route westward to Albany to compete with the B&A's southerly route. These and many, many other acquisitions of smaller branch line railroads established the B&M as the major carrier in Upper New England. As a result of this voracious expansion, by the end of the 19th century, the B&M had accrued enough route miles to encircle the state of New Hampshire thrice over. Although it led significantly to the growth of many New England mill towns, and was a vital link for most of the region, the B&M's aggressive overachieving and veritable 8,000 thread count blanket of routes covering central New England meant that it never had a very strong profit margin. This led to several reorganizations and attempted takeovers by other railroad systems, but the B&M still managed to hold its own. In part due to its expansive network and near-monolithic control of routes between southern and northern New England, the B&M had numerous named passenger trains, including the Alouette from Boston to Montreal, the Ambassador on the same route with connections to New York City, and the Minutemen to Albany. An interesting dalliance with a Talgo-style design was the Speed Merchant, an experimental three-car, two-locomotive, bi-directional, lightweight married train set. It made a singular run between Boston and Portland, during which it lit a fire trackside, and was deemed such a rough ride that it was immediately relegated to lowly commuter service. Passenger ridership peaked around 1920, but soon started to see cuts on smaller branch lines. To stem passenger losses, the B&M started using self-propelled rail cars on the remaining lightly trafficked passenger lines. In 1935, it introduced the Flying Yankee, a singular streamlined train set patterned off the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy's Pioneer Zephyr. The Flying Yankee made a single daily round trip between Boston and Bangor via Portland to supplement existing options with a high-speed, flashy branding. To further cut passenger losses, the B&M was one of the first railroads to start using bud-built rail diesel cars, or RDCs. If I haven't explained before, RDCs are stainless steel-clad, self-propelled rail cars with multiple unit capability that could be operated very, very cheaply by one person, and were used by many railroads as a stopgap measure to maintain passenger service on poorly profitable routes. The New York, New Haven, and Hartford, to be discussed next episode, initially had the largest fleet of 40 RDCs servicing two-thirds of all its passenger routes. The B&M, however, with its similarly extensive branch lines, saw an opportunity and acquired a whopping 108 RDCs by 1958, more than any other railroad before or since, I believe, for use on its numerous small passenger trains and its all-RDC Boston commuter service. Even with these cost-cutting measures, the B&M curtailed almost all commuter service by the 1960s. This sharp decline in rail accessibility was met with public outcry, and led to the formation of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, one of the first and largest transit agencies in the country. Though it had already been operating streetcars since 1947, the Mass Transportation Commission funded an experiment with state-sponsored commuter rail starting in 1963. When that proved to be successful, the MBTA reached an agreement with the B&M to subsidize service within 20 miles of the city. In 1977, the MBTA purchased all remaining B&M commuter equipment and most of its north side lines, as well as taking over south side service initially contracted to the Boston and Albany and the New York, New Haven, and Hartford. 
However, by 1970, all but four B&M passenger trains were gone, and the B&M filed for bankruptcy. When Conrail was formed, the B&M was offered a takeover and buyout, but once again held its own, until it was purchased in 1983 by Gulford Transportation Industries, or GTI, owned by Timothy Mellon, the heir to the Mellon fortune. Guilford purchased the Pan Am World Airways branding in 1998 and rebranded in 2006 to Pan Am Railways, now the major carrier in northern New England. In 2020, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, Pan Am suffered incurable losses and was put up for sale. CSX Transportation made an offer to buy Pan Am Railways, but in part due to efforts by Norfolk Southern, the Surface Transportation Board in 2021 deemed the offer to purchase, quote, incomplete, unquote, as a result of, quote, contradictions, unquote, and, quote, a lack of necessary information, unquote, but gave consideration to a later refiling. The story is currently unfolding. Although CSX does own the old B&A route in southern Massachusetts and has extensive trackage in Boston, Norfolk Southern does have trackage rights via the Northern Mass B&M route to Boston and thence Portland. NS and Pan Am joined forces to jointly own the old B&M Hoosick Tunnel route, NS giving $140 million to improve it, and officially NS has no exclusive ownership to any trackage beyond southern New York, so it makes sense to me that NS would want to defend its investments. In my personal opinion, I think it is fair for NS to maintain its access to Boston and maybe thence Portland, but beyond that, I'd argue CSX may have the rights to the rest of the Pan Am system. A la Conrail, if the CSX acquisition goes forward, I'd vote that Pan Am 2 be split fairly between the two companies. Continuing further north, we have the Main Central Railroad. The MC was formed in 1862 from the merger of two smaller railroads to make a line from just outside of Portland to Bangor. Its initial route into Portland was via the Grand Trunk Railroad system, to be discussed momentarily. Sidebar. Back in the early years of railroading, though standard gauge of 4 feet 8.5 inches was popular, it was not universal. As one would expect from its present survival, railroads of a narrower gauge were originally marketed as lighter duty, cheaper to build railroads, particularly in rough mountain terrain. However, there is another end to this spectrum often overlooked by the hobby, the airline. An airline was a railroad meant to have maximum efficiency of operation and high-speed direct travel. Whereas normal railroads would try to hit most major towns along a route and react to the terrain, airlines were usually very long, very straight, and very flat, filling or bridging valleys, notching or tunneling through hills, and gliding over cities on long viaducts. As such, airlines were usually quite expensive to construct. Most were in the range of six-foot gauge because of the prevailing thought at the time that it reduced maintenance and friction while increasing stability at speed and cargo capacity. However, as time wore on, financial studies revealed that any perceived cost savings from the broader gauge was offset by the need to transload cargo, and all airlines were eventually regaged to standard. The two most famous were the six-foot gauge Erie Railroad, stretching from New York to Chicago, and, of relevance here, the Grand Trunk Railroad, connecting Boston and Portland with Chicago via Quebec and Ontario. Since the Grand Trunk Railroad was 5 foot 6 inch gauge, and was the main central's original connection to Portland, so too was the MC broad-gauged. However, recognizing the limitation of a different gauge, the MC came up with an ingenious solution for regaging. Instead of halting all freight traffic for the duration of construction, which, to be sure, was done on several other railroads, lasting each for but a few days due to legendary logistical prowess, the MC acquired the standard-gauged Portland and Quebec Railroad in 1867, which ran from Augusta to Portland. 
Thus, not only did the MC finally have its own connection to Portland and an interchange with Boston and Maine, it also had an alternate standard gauge mainline, so traffic could still flow and revenue could still be generated even while parts of the original route were shut down. As with the times, the MC, or MEC as it's sometimes called by its reporting marks, continued to grow through the 1880s by acquisition and construction, covering most of southern Maine and reaching as far north as Lime Ridge, Quebec, Moosehead Lake, and Vanceboro, Maine, and as far east as Eastport, Maine, formerly the easternmost rail-served seaport in the United States. Its route to Quebec had a branch to St. Johnsbury, Vermont, a notable New England railroad town and the junction of multiple different railroads, and both routes were accessible via Crawford Notch through the White Mountains of New Hampshire, a famous and scenic railroad pass which still survives today under the Conway Scenic Railroad. Since much of Maine was and remains rural, the Maine Central is mostly known for its tourist service. It diversified into Northwoods hotels and steamship lines there too, advertising heavily in major eastern and midwestern cities to cash in on the rising trend of wilderness hunting, think Theodore Roosevelt. For the more mild-mannered vacationers, starting in 1903, the Bar Harbor Express offered all luxury travel from New York via Springfield and Portland to Rockland, whereby a ferry could be taken to its namesake destination, operating as a joint venture between the MC, the New York, New Haven, and Hartford, and the Boston and Albany. Later, through cars were routed along the Pennsylvania from D.C. and Philadelphia. The state of Maine passenger train shadowed the Bar Harbor Express, offering local and coach service. The MC also operated its share of the aforementioned Flying Yankee from Portland to Bangor, which partially survives to this day as Amtrak's Downeaster, operating out of Boston North Station and the only Amtrak route to not offer a direct transfer to another intercity train. As with most railroads after World War I and during the Depression, the MC started divesting itself of branch lines, hotels, and steamship operations. Similarly, passenger operations ceased in 1960, and freight was reduced through the 1980s. The MC's story ends with its acquisition by Guilford Transportation in 1981, slightly before the B&M. After consolidation, GT ablated significant portions of the MC's system, including the Mountain Division to St. Johnsbury and the Rockland Branch, but both routes were eventually given guardianship by the state of Maine, which, ever the optimist, tried to maintain the viability of local businesses and industries by contracting out operation of these branches under the moniker of the Maine Eastern Railroad. Through contract disputes and intermittent demand, the ME is a peculiar operation, with long periods of purgatory, not seeing a single revenue train for years, but being kept in a perpetual state of good repair for a tourist railroad or shortline that may never come. The final railroad of note in Upper New England is the Central Vermont Railway. The CV was one of the few north-south routes in New England, and ultimately stretched from the U.S.-Canada border just above Burlington all the way down to New London, Connecticut, traveling through Massachusetts and a smidgen of Quebec, almost entirely along the Connecticut River. Counterintuitively, its original purpose was to make the more easterly-westerly connection between Burlington and Vermont's capital, Montpellier, because that's how the French fucking say it. However, terrain considerations left the capital to be served by a branch line, which opened in 1845, and expansion continued southward to the Long Island Sound on the very last day of 1849. 
Meanwhile, a branch from Essex Junction, east of Burlington, was built northward to the border to St. John's, Quebec for an interchange with the Grand Trunk system. Part of the CV's nature came from an uncommon failure in corporate control. A majority of extensions I have described in all railroads heretofore came in the form of subsidiary corporations with later acquisition, and the CV was no different in an attempt to reach Boston and New London. However, both were deftly acquired by the Boston and Maine, although trackage rights were maintained for the CV since its north-south traffic was not of direct competition to the east-west B&M. Oddly enough, the Canadian subsidiary of the CV also started fighting back, and the Consolidated Railway was formed to take over them both in 1884, heh, ye olde Conrail, only to itself be taken over a mere two days later by a now unified Central Vermont Railroad Company, only to go into receivership 12 years later and be taken over by a succession of companies until the Central Vermont Railway run out in 1899. For a brief period in the latter 19th century, the CAV controlled the vast majority of railroads in Vermont, as did the BNM in New Hampshire and the MC in Maine. But these corporate bungles left it reduced once again to its north-south course between Quebec and New London. Incidentally, though, from a modeler's standpoint anyway, this led to a greater variety of more unique and charismatic railroads, particularly short lines, being present in Vermont than in either New York or New Hampshire. In the 1930s, the CV went into receivership yet again, and reorganized as a southern connection for the then-nationalized Canadian National Railway, see episode 39, scheduled for release in August 2056. As always, traffic declined in the 1950s, forcing dieselization and branch line arbitrage and jettisoning. Betraying its corporate heritage, the CV's logo adopted the same script as the parent CN's Wet Noodle, or CN Worm logo, which itself was very similar to NASA's 1970s and 80s logo in that all letters were depicted by a single, overly squiggly line. The CV chugged along until much, much later when, in 1995, CN was privatized and the CV branch was itself discarded to be whored out to a revolving door of shortline operators, ending with a Genesee and Wyoming in 2012. The spirit of the CV, or what little of it wasn't lost among the pushpin and red yarn crazy wall of its corporate history, survives in Amtrak's Vermonter, which rides the Northeast Corridor from Washington City to New Haven and Springfield before shortly thereafter joining the old CV route north of Brattleboro, Vermont, and an almost offensively scenic ride along the Connecticut River and thence to Montpellier and Burlington's Essex Junction suburb, pending extension to Montreal slated at the time of publication. The next category of railroads worth discussing is that of Northern New England Regional Railroads, the so-called Class Twos. Fairly similar in function to the CV, the St. Lawrence and Atlantic served as an east-west Canadian gateway. Relating back to the theme of water access, the raison d'etre of the St. Helena was to connect the year-round port of Portland with the not-so-perennial port of Montreal. Portland was chosen over Boston for monopoly interests. Initially charted as the Atlantic and St. Lawrence in 1845, it very slowly advanced its 5-foot-6-inch Portland gauge through northern New Hampshire and Vermont over the course of several years, opening, after three years of construction, its meager first 12 miles. Construction sped up slightly thereafter, with 60 miles opening over the next triennial, barely reaching the edge of Maine. Thence, a separate organization was created in Quebec, with its reversed and current name, and construction proceeded on multiple fronts. In 1853, regular operations between Portland and Montreal commenced. A mere four months after opening, the Grand Trunk leased the St. Helena as a way to extend its Toronto to Montreal mainline all the way to the Atlantic. 
Quite early on, brake bulk cargo started to become a thorn in the GT's side, and so-called sliding wheel freight cars were investigated in the early 1860s, resulting in, quote, safety problems, unquote, which, in the pre-OSHA Gilded Age, speaks volumes. After months of preparatory work, track crews slept lineside on the night of September 25, 1874. At 0200 on the morning of the 26th, the last Portland gauge train arrived in Portland, Maine, and the regaging commenced. Over 400 kilometers of mainline from Montreal to Portland were regaged by 9 a.m. the same morning. Though most freight cars were retrofitted with new trunks to accommodate the gauge change, the locomotives with more specialized axles were fully replaced. The majority of traffic on the St. Helena was typically New Englandy and Canadian, read textiles and grain elevators respectively. By 1900, Portland had elevator capacity for millions of bushels of grain, and most of this was fed by the St. Helena ferrying agricultural goods from beyond the mountains. Of note, the railroad also resulted in a significant emigration of Francophone Canadians to northern New England. Conversely, the railroad became an artery for immigration into Canada, with a height of 50 steamships a year terminating in Portland from predominantly British ports. Passenger service met this continental interior demand with such trains as the International Limited running from Portland to Chicago via Montreal and Toronto. In later times, regular train service in cooperation with the Boston and Maine provided Montreal vacationers with access to the Maine coast. Spoiler alert, presaging the American Northeast by 50 years, Grand Trunk went bankrupt in the 1920s, forcing a large-scale Canadian nationalization. As it so happened, this suddenly allowed for numerous other maritime ports to enter the picture under the same system, and Halifax started siphoning most of the Canadian interior traffic by advantage of fewer border crossings. During this time, although the freight precipitated plummetously, a growing demand for paper products sustained the Portland line where bridge traffic did not. Portland received a brief insurgence of strategic investment during World War II, but unrelenting traffic declines led to the line becoming, in the 1980s, what the Wikipedia article ever so eloquently calls, quote, a candidate for divestiture, unquote. In 1989, the St. LNA corporate identity was resuscitated as a short line to operate between Portland, Maine, and Saint-Rosalie, Quebec. Dear God, someone forgive me for that pronunciation. In 2002, it was acquired by the Genesee and Wyoming Shortline Conglomerate, and currently operates 160 miles of track. Rotating again to the farthest northeast in Maine, we find the Bangor and Aroostook Railroad. Colloquially known by its reporting mark, the Bar corporate identity actually arrived comparatively late in the game, resulting from the merger of two small railroads in 1891. The railroad's main line extended due north from a seaport at Cape Jefferson via its headquarters in Bangor, and then curved northeast to almost the Canadian border at Halton, halfway up the eastern border of Maine. Additionally, a branch curved west through central Maine to Gulford, Monson, and Greenville. A few years into operation, two parallel lines were constructed due north again, paralleling the border and each other, until reaching the far northernmost tip of Maine by 1902. Over the next decade, branches and extensions were built, a cutoff straightened the lower main line, and the two northern lines were connected in a tangle of branches. In 1915, the bar barely dipped into New Brunswick via an international bridge. Interestingly enough, and a fact about Maine which I did not know, potatoes composed the majority of the bar's haulage. 
An investment in perishable traffic led the bar to coordinate with the Pacific Fruit Express system, wherein PFE reefers were loaned to the bar for the winter potato harvest, and bar reefers were loaned to the PFE for summer California agricultural traffic. This led to the widespread travel and recognition of bar reefers, which were outfitted in a very distinctive red, white, and blue paint scheme extolling state-of-Maine potatoes. Though these cars were emblematic of 1950s railroading, potato traffic declined in the 1960s and 70s due to automobile competition and a botched interchange arrangement with Penn Central. Other major sources of revenue centered around paper milling, with inbound chemicals and wood chips and outbound paper. The bar's primary passenger service was along the central portion and northeastern branch of its mainline. The Aroostook Flyer ran from Bangor to Van Buren, across the bridge from New Brunswick, halfway up Maine's eastern edge, and a morning train ran the same route but continued to the end of the mainline to just about the northernmost point of Maine. The western branch to Greenville was a primary connection point with Canadian mainline roads and served as a major port of entry onto the bar's passenger trains for overland travelers. Beyond that, a few other branch lines had local service. Starting in the 1930s, the bar partnered with Greyhound buses to run certain routes. By the death of passenger service in 1961, the buses had consumed what little service remained, and the Greenville branch was abandoned in the wake of this loss of strategic passenger transfer. Starting in the 1970s, the bar began a long, slow decline, fed by the loss of manufacturing and potato traffic. After a rotating cast of owners, the main line was sold to the state of Maine for a mere $20 million. This is not an uncommon tactic. In certain states experiencing a precipitous decline in economic viability and ensuing rail connectivity, most notably Maine, Vermont, and West Virginia, the state will take over a failing railroad and start eating losses in order to maintain the vital industrial link to the outside world and thereby prevent a downward spiral where the lost railroad causes even more industries to leave the region. Most often, the operation of the nationalized lines are contracted to outside companies, as is the case here with the main Northern Railway, which runs to this day. Interestingly, the remaining southernmost portion of the bar eventually made its way into Canadian Pacific hands for, once again, deja vu seaport access. Now that we've covered the major players in the region, I'll go into much smaller roads, the short lines serving the backwaters of northern New England, the Class 3s. Probably the most famous of which is the Belfast and Moosehead Lake. Chartered in 1867 and opening four years later, the BNML initially was built and owned by the city of Belfast but leased to the main central as a way for the municipality to gain freight and passenger service. However, in 1925, the MC cancelled its lease, so the BNML became an independent railroad. The line extended 33 miles from Belfast to Burnham Junction on the MC's main line. Though nowhere near the eponymous terminus of Moosehead Lake, the railroad was extended no further. Under the MC, the line was operated as a branch connection, with three passenger round trips daily, and to my understanding, no through service, requiring transfers at Burnham Junction. Most of the freight was inbound consumer goods and food, and outbound manufactured goods, fish, and some agricultural products. Later, when independent, most of the traffic revolved around the area's increasing poultry business. Interestingly, as freight declined in the 1990s, the city divested itself of the railroad and a succession of operators turned to a newly booming industry, tourism. Though there were a few hiccups and the railroad retreated from downtown Belfast, it still survives to this day as a popular attraction, part of Maine's vacation land. The Grafton and Upland was a slightly smaller branch line and served central Massachusetts. 
Chartered in 1873 as the narrow-gauge Grafton Center Railroad, the railroad initially served as a feeder line between the Boston and Albany in North Grafton and the town of Grafton itself, a distance of only but a few miles. In the late 1880s, the line changed its name to that which it is known today, converted to standard gauge, and extended about 20 miles southeast through Upton to Milford, which had another connection with the BNA and the New Haven. In 1902, the railroad acquired the Upton Street Railway and electrified its entire main line. Electric trolley service took place during the day, and steam freight switching occurred at night. However, when passenger service was terminated in the late 1920s, I believe the railroad operated freight service with electric freight motors until dieselization in 1946. In accordance with the decline of traffic to the 70s and 80s, the southern half of the line was abandoned, with operations surviving between Grafton Yard and Upton, but most of the line becoming effectively inactive in the 1990s. After a cyclorama of owners, the railroad was acquired by John Deli Priscoli in 2008, with his intention being to revitalize traffic and service. After a few test runs and some trackage upgrades, service returned to West Upton in 2009. Over the next decade, the rest of the main line to Milford was restored to operating condition, and, in an interesting twist, this past year, the GNU took control of the 9-mile CSX branch running south from Milford to Franklin. Today, the Grafton and Upton is a standout success as a small short line. As mainline railroads amalgamated into megalithic entities, financiers started to favor high-value, long-haul, minimal intervention traffic. So, while the big roads sought out unit trains of primarily coal, corn syrup, gas, intermodal freight, and capitalism pellets, the smaller shippers requiring only a boxcar a week began to suffer from poor service, delays, and neglect. While this is a fair business strategy to boost stock prices, profitability, and capital investment, a global disinvestment in coal over the past 20 years has taught the Class 1s that railroading lacking diverse traffic is unsustainable. While short-line railroad conglomerates have existed since the 1940s, the most famous early adopter being the S.M. Pinsley Railroad of New England, it wasn't until about 2005 that their place in the larger railroading industry started to become apparent. Since they can usually run on much tighter margins, and being local can offer more personal service, a significant portion of modern switching and financial freight delivery to, or pickup from, customers is done by exceedingly short short lines. The Grafton and Upton exemplifies this dynamic. Instead of simply restoring a railroad line and running it back and forth, the GNU and innumerable other short-line companies have focused on expanding service for endpoint customers, developing new industrial parks, bulk transloading facilities, and national network connections, all serviced by attentive, customer-oriented, but minimal crews. This works well for all parties involved, as customers are guaranteed a more reliable and flexible switching schedule, whereas big railroads get more traffic but don't have to spend resources switching to each individual customer, more simply leaving a single large block of cars at the interchange for the short line to sort through on its own time. This is how small railroads can operate profitably, even if they're only a few miles long. You aren't buying transportation from a short line, you're buying logistics. The mutual benefit of this dynamic is evidenced by the short-line railroad maps and directories on the websites of every single major Class 1 railroad in North America. Although the Northeast is not exactly known for its narrow-gauge railroads, there are still a few of note. The first is the Boston, Revere Beach, and Lynn Railroad. Chartered in 1874, the BRBNL was an anomaly as a three-foot gauge commuter railroad. Its main terminus connected with Boston across the bay with a railroad-owned ferry service, and it wound its way along the northeastern shoreline through developing seaside suburbs. A competitor railroad laid out a loop along a peninsula from Orient Heights to Winthrop, later to be acquired by the BRBNL. 
The railroad specialized in fast commuting operations and had a fleet of passenger cars and 066 Mason Bogie type locomotives. By the 1900s, it was an extremely popular route to access beach resorts, and it served a litany of seaside festivals, events, and activities throughout the years, making it one of the most heavily traveled stretches of American Railroad by the start of World War I. Incidentally, several of its older passenger cars were purchased by the East Broadtop Railroad, another eastern narrow-gauge stalwart to be discussed next time, and some survive to this day. As time went on, the railroad electrified and became a mini-metro system in the late 1920s. But, as always, private automobiles, blah blah blah, 1930s, blah blah blah, and a hurricane all but sealed its fate of a closure in 1940. Upon abandonment, much of the railroad's physical plant was scrapped within weeks, and commuters took refuge with buses and the occasionally nearby Boston Elevated Railroad. However, the Boston Elevated decided to buy up the BRBNL's right-of-way with the intent of using it as a high-speed trolley line. This saved the right-of-way from encroachment, and shortly after World War II, the newly formed MBTA predecessor built over the next decade what is now the blue-lined heavy rail metro, serving a significant portion of the original BRBNL right-of-way and even station sites. Although accessing downtown Boston by tunnel and not ferry, the original concept of this very unique narrow-gauge rapid commuter line, in a sense, lives on as part of the country's oldest subway system. Another notable northeastern narrow-gauge was the Martha's Vineyard Railroad. Founded in 1874, the three-foot-wide by nine-mile-long railroad served its namesake island and vacation destination. Along with the growing Gilded Age's bourgeoisie class came an appetite for tourism, and the MV was one of the earliest such railroads devoted to that purpose. Its premise was simple, connect party-goers arriving at the wharf on the north side of the island with resorts on the south side. Constructed very quickly, the railroad's first locomotive couldn't navigate its rough track, and its second locomotive tipped over at the port during unloading. By the time the second Loki returned from Boston for repairs, the summer was almost over, but it actually did work this time. It pays to have a test run before your opening ceremonies, kids. The railroad operated, usually at a loss, shuttling people and light supplies across the island in a very simple operation, less than a dozen turnouts total, I believe. It was abandoned in 1896. A similar operation started a little later, but lasted a little longer on the neighboring island paradise of Nantucket. Opening in 1881, and also nine miles long, the Nantucket Central Railroad had a very similar operating paradigm, linking Stoss side ferries with Lee side ports. However, the NC lasted about half again as long as the MV, and had commensurately more locomotives and rolling stock. Interestingly, the NC's demise was slightly more than the normal financial fatigue. In 1917, it ceased operations because its component parts were shipped to France for use in the World War I trenches. Although these miniseries episodes will normally play out in the direction of Class 1 to 2 to 3, if there are ever unique examples of railroads which would otherwise be besmirched by such raw classification, I will address them here at the end. For northern New England, however, there is a category of railroading almost entirely unelicited anywhere else. The two-foot gauge railroad. The story of the so-called Lilliputians begins with the Bilerica and Bedford Railroad between its titular cities in northern Massachusetts. 
In the 1870s, a George Mansfield of Hazelwood, Massachusetts, visited the world-famous Festiniog Railway in Wales, which pioneered two-foot gauge operations. In the railroad fever of that era, smaller, less economically viable routes, he reasoned, could be built exceedingly cheaply by way of more than halving the size of the right-of-way and equipment required, allowing an otherwise mediocre route to be more profitable. As we've covered before, though narrow-gauge railroads are much cheaper to build, they make up for these savings by break-bulk cargo transfer requiring time and labor to transfer cargo, a process which, as wages grew, became less favorable in comparison to a simple same-gauge freight car interchange. As can be extrapolated from this, the narrow-gauge railroads which hung on the longest were either lines isolated from the national network, such as logging railroads, which didn't have much need for an interchange, or railroads that were part of a narrow-gauge network, such as in Colorado, where an interchange between railroads was still moderately feasible. However, all of this was unknown at the time of George Mansfield, but what's more interesting about his vision is not just that a railroad could be built more cheaply, but that this cheaper construction could allow a railroad to be built to pretty much any community, even ones which the main lines refused to serve. Enter the Balearica and Bedford. In 1875, Mansfield built a small 10-inch gauge railroad in his backyard to demonstrate the concept of a minimum gauge railway, and was able to convince some investors to plot a full-scale venture. Built in only a few months during 1877, and running but 14 clicks between North Bellerica, just outside of Lowell, and Bedford in northeastern Massachusetts, the two-foot gauge B&B went bankrupt within six months of opening and was scrapped as a result of stockholder takeover. However, most of the railroad's flaws, Mansfield maintained, came from overdrawing loans and fickle financiers, not with the concept itself. The railroad's legacy lived on. Its right-of-way was taken over a decade later by a standard-gauge railroad, and Mansfield, ever the industrious inventor, left with his idea for Maine, taking the B&B equipment with him. Mansfield's next project was the Sandy River Railroad. After petitioning various communities, several primarily agrarian towns in central Maine exhibited interest and enough stock subscriptions were obtained to begin construction. The initial line connected with the Maine Central at Farmington and ran up the Sandy River to Strong and Phillips. This proved to be the initial trunk from which the most expansive two-foot gauge empire would radiate. Opening in 1879, the SR used all the equipment from the B&B and trundled along quite happily, gaining traction. A few years into operation, the Lilliputian concept was solidified in the mind of the region, and another startup railroad entered the picture in 1883, the Franklin and Megantic. The FM started in Strong, midway along the SR's main, and, using a backwards junction, left the Sandy River to head northeast into more sylvan territory. A few years later, in 1890, another railroad, the Phillips and Rangeley, built north from the SR's terminus in Phillips around Saddleback Mountain and up towards its namesake resort town in Rangeley with similar aspirations towards timber. As these system expansions occurred, the SR began acquiring larger and more locomotives better suited to line haul through freights. Additionally, it began operating a Farmington to Rangeley through passenger service in coordination with the P&R. In 1901, the SR supplemented this flagship passenger train with the only two-foot gauge parlor car to ever be constructed, the Rangeley, to serve the wealthy patrons traveling to the Rangeley Lake House Resort. In 1898, the SR acquired control of the F&M and began operating it as a branch, although the wrong-way junction required trains heading from Farmington to stop in Strong, reverse direction, and then proceed up the branch. This set the stage for a tripartite merger, and in 1908, the Sandy River forced the P&R, which was always on dubious financial footing, to public auction over defaulted bonds, made a successful bid, and began operating the entire Lilliputian Empire as the Sandy River and Rangeley Lakes Railroad. 
One thing that made the two-footers unique was their favor of 044Ts, or locomotives with no leading pilot trucks, four driving wheels, and four wheels under the tender, all on one solid, unarticulated frame. In the 1870s, this was a semi-popular configuration because it was thought to be a small, lightweight locomotive for fast and versatile operations, in part because of the shared frame, unlike its backwards cousin, the 440 American, which split its weight over a locomotive and an unpowered tender. However, the design had two innate flaws. First, the lack of pilot truck made them jolt quite harshly on curves. Secondly, the single frame actually made it quite stiff, increasing the harassment of turns. The former error was fixed by the addition of a one-axle pilot truck in later models to make the 244T, but the latter was never rectified. While 044 Fornies, as they were called, had a celebrated initial success on many early 1870s and 1880s narrow-gauge and urban-elevated railroads, a slightly less famous competition between a Forney and an American on the Mount Gretna narrow-gauge railroad in the 1890s demonstrated the 440's aptitude over its counterpart, and Fornies were rarely seen past the turn of the century on any railroad save the Lilliputians. Anyway, the SR and RL's Dominion extended for almost 180 kilometers, and in the north fell short of a complete loop by only 20 or so clicks. Soon after its consolidation, the main central acquired control and operated it as a subsidiary. However, the lifeblood of the two mainline branches, the old FNM and PNR, timber began to play out, and traffic steadily declined from undefeseminarian highs. Shit, I should not write these things while drunk. Undefeseminarian of or pertaining to the 19th century. The loss of pulpwood in the wake of World War I was a severe blow to traffic, and for the first time, service cutbacks were issued on far-flung branches to abate overhead. Due to demerge from the break engaged, the Lilliputians were suffering from economic debility much earlier than many mainline railroads, and in 1923, the railroad was transferred from MC Holding into receivership. Seasonal cutbacks continued, as did passenger service, which was soon supplemented by three exceedingly unique rail buses built by the Phillips shops to take over in the Clement summer. In 1924, the first branches were outrightly abandoned, and the Rangeley Lake House Hotel lost service in 1927. The Depression made an already bad situation worse. 1932 saw the replacement of some freight service with SR and RL automotive trucks. 1933 saw freight revenues supplemented by scrap sales of equipment, and 1934 marked the start of dismantling track from Rangeley on the old PNR. When track disassembly reached Phillips the next year, since any further track demolition would have left the railroad without repair shops, the receivers petitioned for full abandonment, and a year later, the Sandy River and Rangeley Lakes was no more. The next Lilliputian to open outside of the Sandy River system was the Bridgeton and Sacco River Railroad. Inspired by the success of the early SR 100 clicks to the northeast, and opening in 1883, four years after the former's inception, the BNSR extended from Bridgeton Junction on what would later become the main central's mountain division to New Hampshire to Bridgeton and Harrison, two small towns about 30 clicks away. The BNSR experienced initial financial success and periodically upgraded its trestles and rail with longevity in mind. In 1912, as with the SR and RL, the BNSR was secured by the main central and operated as a branch. In 1926, the railroad faltered on its financial obligations, and in a prescient move, the town of Bridgeton began subsidizing the four daily round trips as what it believed to be vital for its community. Thus was the BNSR reorganized into the Bridgeton and Harrison, even though tracks to Harrison were stripped in 1930. The BNH ceased operations in 1941 as the last surviving Lilliputian.
The successive two-footer to be built was the grandiose-sounding Wiscasset and Quebec. Initially hoping to connect the Lower Canadian Inland with the year-round deep-water port of Wiscasset, the railroad built due north, bypassing most meaningful towns along the way in favor of an arrow-straight trajectory and stations dropped with regular periodicity. By 1895, it had reached Weeks Mills and officially started operations. In 1897, it attempted to cross the Belfast and Moosehead Lake slash Main Central with a diamond crossing north of Albion, but failed in continuing its northward track as a result of suspected corporate subterfuge. So, in 1901, the railroad reorganized under a much meeker moniker, the Wiscasset, Waterville, and Farmington, which it nonetheless even then failed to live up to by never reaching the latter two names either. In an effort to reorient its purpose, a branch was built from Weeks Mills to Winslow on the Kennebec River, adopting a tuning fork-like mainline. This was an attempt to extend all the way to the Sandy River system in Farmington and make a unified narrow-gauge megasystem with deep water port access. But, as aforementioned, this never materialized. Thus thwarted in its grander aspirations, the WWNF was left with a largely rural mainline connecting to a tiny but bustling port and began the life of a raw materials exporter. Poultry, lumbers, potatoes, and other agricultural products snaked their way down along the Sheepscot River, with small amounts of inbound coal, manufactured goods, and the like heading back up to support the region's population. The scenic beauty, especially of the Wiscasset port, made the WWNF one of the more popular Lilliputians. Because of limited land from the town being built on a hillside, and what little waterfront space already being occupied by the main central standard gauge, the railroad built a long, low trestle paralleling the town, but out over the water. The trestle actually crossed the MC's main on its own trestle, I believe having a joint station at the Diamond Crossing over the water, and continued south a short distance to the WWNF's own pier for schooners. However, the railroad's light-duty revenue sources left it vulnerable. In 1933, when a locomotive derailed out on the main line, the train crew walked home and management decided that rescuing the train wasn't worth the effort. The railroad sat in a state of suspended animation for several years before it was scrapped for World War II supplies. With the Lilliputian mainlines covered, there were two short lines of cherubic scope, the first being the Monson Railroad. The farthest northern two-footer, the Monson was built in 1883 to serve slate quarrying operations established in the 1860s. Due to the Arctic climate and encumbrance of final products, hauling slate bathtubs and whatnot wasn't exactly the easiest thing to do with wagons during the winter and mud seasons. Whereas the other Lilliputians posed as full-service operations, the Monson was always a one-trick pony, with its primary purpose being slate-out supplies-in. It maintained never more than two locomotives in active service at a time, a few dozen flat cars, a boxcar or three, a singular passenger car, and a small fleet of snow-fighting equipment. It was a mere six miles in length, running from Monson Junction on the Bangor and Arustuk north to its eponymous town. A little farther, it went through the factory complex of the Monson Slate Company, then turning east to a tangle of tracks around the quarries. The Monson was the country's last two-foot gauge common carrier when service was discontinued in 1943, and it was dismantled in 1944. The final Lilliputian in our story is the oddest of them all, the Kennebec Central. Interestingly, it was also the shortest-lived, lasting from 1890 to 1929. The KC was built a scanty five miles from Randolph, Maine, right across the Kennebec River from Gardner, Maine, to the Togus Soldiers' Home, an ex-resort purchased by the government and operated as a hospital and then-retirement home for Civil War veterans, incidentally hosting both Union and racist soldiers. 
And before you send me an email or leave a nasty iTunes review, if you spent an attosecond reading a history book, you'd know that the Civil War was not fought for states' rights at all. Early on in the war, the Confederate government explicitly removed Virginia's rights as a state and enforced a Confederate national draft, and on the march to Gettysburg, General Lee enslaved over 400 Pennsylvanians whom had been freedmen their entire lives solely because they were more resistant to sunburns than his pasty white ass. Don't for a moment think that the South fought a war for any reasons other than vile, contemptible bigotry and 1860s-style QAnonsense. Anyway, as happens when you accumulate a critical mass of people accustomed to military organization and with nothing to do, they start organizing and doing things. It all began with a Memorial Day celebration, an invention which, shameless plug, was pioneered at Penn State, which then grew to include a veteran orchestra, then a bandstand, then a baseball diamond, then nightly summer concerts and picnics, then a strolling garden, then a small menagerie, then an opera house, then a luxury hotel, then a fine dining restaurant serving this newfangled high-tech thing called iced cream. As the soldier's home was growing, it became clear the Togus was becoming a tourist destination. Its location was fairly ideal, being near the head of tide of the Kennebec River, almost equidistant between Portland and Augusta, so a sizable population could make it a day trip. Moreover, it was a logical layover for traveling productions heading from New England to Lower Canada, so the soldier's home was able to punch well above its weight in garnering big-name acts. The problem, as is near-universally the case with North American transit, was last-mile service. How would you get from your river steamship, or later railroad across the river, to Togus without an arduous, bumpy, multi-hour carriage ride prone to delay from mud and snow? Enter the near-universal solution to North American transit, rail-based service, in the form of the Kennebec Central Railroad. Patrons would walk across the river on a long covered bridge to an attractive, if quirky, station and a small yard. I think that, once again, over the entire railroad, not a dozen turnouts were used, and it had a turntable at each end of the line. It was a very simple, streamlined operation, offering four or more trips to Togus Daily, along with additional trains for special events. It had a half-dozen passenger cars, including open-air coaches, and never more than two locomotives at a time, all 04440s and one of which survives and operates to this day. However, if you pour over the financial documents, you'll find that the KC's main purpose was actually, go figure, a coal hauler. Though nothing like the Clinchfield, Virginian, or innumerable other eastern giants which hauled coal from inland to tidewater, the KC hauled coal the other way, from tidewater inland. Next to Randolph Station was a very peculiar two-track coal bunker that used an oddly-shaped bucket crane and small rooftop tram to unload coal from schooners and dump them into very low-sided gondolas. Many of the trains to Togus were actually mixed trains. Upon arrival at Togus, the locomotive would drop the passenger cars at the combination depot-restaurant-hotel and run the coal gons up an elevated trestle to be unloaded at the soldiers' home's power plant. Two boxcars were also used to provision the home. Another sizable source of revenue was reverse commuting. Many veterans would receive tips for their service at Togus, but would have nothing to spend it on because their pensions took care of boarding and meals. So, with a surplus of money and time, the veterans would frequently ride the KC into town for a day of drinking. If soldiers were problematically inebriated on their return, the conductor would use the baggage compartment of the Combine as a brig, and would make a stop at Drunkard's Hill just outside of Togus for them to sober up. 
If the revelers missed the last train, they'd walk back home along the railroad tracks, and many amusing stories amassed over the years of Roysters being startled by an oncoming train. The Little Tea Kettle Railroad was a community institution by the time it closed up shop in 1929 when a trucking company was awarded the coal contract. In 1936, most of what remained of the railroad was washed out to sea in one of the Kennebec River's famous floods. I had originally intended to cover all New England railroads in this episode, but page counts inform this to be a dubious proposition. Next episode, I'll repeat this process with Southern New England, telling you about the class 1s, 2s, 3s, and quirks. However, before I close out for this episode, there is one more particularly special railroad to cover, and it has relevance to, astoundingly, nearly all subsequent railroad history preservation efforts in the world. The Depression was a very unique time. Although the vast majority of Americans lived in poverty or unemployment, at risk of being called a capitalist, or worse, a trickle-down economist, surprisingly few people remember the <clears throat> affluent playboys of the 1930s. Two things happened simultaneously. First, innumerable small, adorable, charismatic railroads were abandoned, and a sudden sense of impermanence panged the hearts of railfans. Secondly, those who remained atop the social ladder abruptly had oodles of liquidity complexing with astoundingly deflated prices. Out of this peculiar climate came a very unique bourgeoisie, one nostalgic for the dying railroads and a wallet deep enough to indulge therein. It was in this era that model railroading started. Though some people brought train sets off the floor, others commissioned bespoke miniatures. Of relevance to this story, 1935 saw the establishment of the National Railroad Historical Society, or NRHS, in Baltimore, the decisive refuge of modelers and historians alike to this day. One such notable amateur historian was the jovial man by the name of Linwood W. Moody. To my memory, he grew up in Maine or somewhere in the suburbs of Boston, and his father took him on numerous road trips to the Lilliputians, a term which he himself coined by way of Gulliver's Travels. Enchanted by the charm of the miniature machines, he was active in the rail preservation scene and eventually wrote a book, The Maine Two-Footers, which remains both the definitive treatise on the Northeastern diminutives as well as a phenomenally interesting and amusing, if not requisite, read for all hobbyists. The uncommon affluence of the railroad melancholics allowed them not only to organize heretofore unprecedented fan trips on moribund railroads, but also allowed them to literally buy up the railroad equipment which would otherwise be sent for scrap. This created model railroaders operating in 12-inch-to-the-foot scale with nowhere to run their trains, and thusly began some of the very first tourist railroads, slash initially tax havens, in the world. Possibly the most famous is the Seashore Trolley Museum in Kennebunkport, Maine, founded in 1939. Perfect driving distance from Boston, it allowed rail enthusiasts to purchase and run a collection which today numbers over 350 vehicles, including subways, buses, a switch tower, and one of the two trolleys which survived the bombing of Nagasaki, Japan. It was during this flurry of appreciation for expiring railroads and the rise of the Faroe Equinophile that the Bridgeton and now Harrison Railroad made a name for itself. By virtue of being the longest surviving Lilliputian, it supplemented its income with numerous fan trips of moneyed Bostonians. Among them was Mr. Ellis D. Atwood, a cranberry bog farmer of southeastern Massachusetts. With the demise of the B&H, Mr. Atwood and his associates decided to purchase all the remaining B&H rolling stock, the B&H itself having been the terminal accumulator of the other Lilliputians' equipment. Trucked down to a point between New Bedford and Plymouth, Massachusetts, Mr. Atwood soon established a railroad of his own, named for L.S.T. Atwood himself, or E.D.A., the Edaville Railroad. 
Initially a private cranberry bog railroad, Atwood started offering rides to his neighbors, then visitors, and it eventually became the Edaville Amusement Park, which survives to this day as a small theme park offering Thomas-themed activities. Because of Atwood's prescient acquisitions, rolling stock and locomotives were saved from almost all of the two-footers, and many of which have since been repatriated to their respective historical associations formed in the 1980s. The Bridgeton and Sacco River has a historical society. The Sandy River and Rangeley Lakes has a museum with a half-mile of track in Phillips. The Wiscasset, Waterville, and Farmington is reconstructing its line north from Alna Center and is the largest with about four miles of track and a locomotive with heritage to the Kennebec Central. And the main narrow-gauge railroad museum offers a more centrally located general museum with train rides for a few miles along the gorgeous Portland waterfront on, if I recall correctly, regaged main central trackage. Were it not for the truly clairvoyant efforts of LSD Atwood and Linwood Moody for discovering two locomotives in an upstate New York scrapyard a decade later, well nigh a hundred pieces of equipment from these inimitably unique railroads would have been lost to the sands of time and progress. I will say that, in the writing of this episode, I was significantly more challenged in fact-checking. While heretofore I was writing either from direct experience or from immediately having read the sources, in this episode I was juggling a wide variety of material on subjects about which I am not an authority. As such, please consider my brief regional overviews to be exactly that. If I have missed or erred in a detail here or there, to the best of my ability I will correct it later. However, if a specific aspect of a specific railroad piques your interest, please do me the favor of going out and finding a book dedicated to the history of that specific matter, as you will inevitably find therein a more manicured and, let's be honest, accurate portrayal thereof. Anyway, that aside, I hope that, with this episode, I have whetted your appetite for the railroads of northern New England. I want to set aside a moment to thank patron Kenny, whom thought the show was so stupendous he increased his pledge not once, but twice. Thank you muchly, Kenny. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced on the ancestral lands of the Susquehannock tribe. I would like to thank them for their historical stewardship of central Pennsylvania. If you want to join our currently dead Facebook community, you can, but I gave up social media over the pandemic, and it probably won't be very interesting. Instead, if you have a question or comment, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... Doodlebug. An autonomous gas or gas electric coach, usually used on small roads or branch lines not important enough to support regular trains. The precursor to RDCs and much less common. Thank you very much for listening, and happy modeling. Thank you.